Welcome to the second Needle Mythology podcast with myself, Pete Perfides, brought to you in proud association with Flair Audio, inventors of the game-changingly brilliant Jet Earphones. This is quite simply an occasional conversation about great records and the way they make us feel, with a guest who knows a thing or two about making great records. With his group, Travis, my companion today, has spent the last couple of decades making the fiendishly elusive business of writing melodies that somehow sound too familiar to have not already existed. It's an effect compounded by the lyrical sentiments he frequently brings to bear upon those records. He has uh, a few more lines on his face these days, but he's always sounded like an old soul. At least he did as far back in 1999 when Travis's second album, The Man Who, descended upon the pop landscape like a fine autumnal mist. It was a beautiful record then and it still is now, so we're going to talk about what it was that made the stars align to produce a wonderful piece of work, almost three million sold at the last count, and then we're going to talk about another record that had a pivotal influence in the life of the gentleman sitting opposite me. All right, now, without further delay, let's say hello to Fran Healy. Hi, Pete. Hi, Fran. You've just stepped off a plane. Yeah. We're in Soho in London. Tell, tell me what you're here for. It's, it's unseasonably warm mm-hmm. here which is it's actually warmer here than it is in Los Angeles which is where I came from and um uh, we're here to um do a little screening of this documentary that and I made wending its way around the world presently isn't it yeah we it's going around festivals it's a documentary about the band um so we invited a journalist who really didn't like us to look through his eyes <laughs> at us when we went to tour in Mexico um, and I kind of, it was a sort of calculated gamble. I, I, I figured. Did he really not like? I mean, did, was well, he just indifferent to you? No, he he. Came, the first thing that Wyndham said to me, we knew each other, um, before, of course. Because um, you used to live in Berlin, mm-hmm. and Wyndham still does live in Berlin. Yeah, and um, he came up to me. We were on a night out, and he introduced himself. He's he's a kind of very well spoken, you know. His father was a, a knight, you know, and his yeah. mother's a, a, a lady. Oh, yeah, no, he's, he's, from, he's from good stock. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, hello, I'm Wyndham Wallace, and uh, I'm, I'm, I just have to tell you straight off that I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of your band. What a charmer. And I, I was like, whoa, that was, that, okay, that's fine. That's totally cool. But he was curious, you know, because he, he had an idea of what we were. Mm. And then he saw me, and he he was like, "That doesn't chime with that." And then I came back to that. Like, so it was a, in the back of my head, he doesn't like us. I don't know what. It wasn't like, "Come on, come and join us yeah. on the road, and I'll make you like us." It was more just I felt that someone that doesn't like you is 
going to tell a much better story than someone who does. I've got to hand it to him. That does it on paper. That doesn't sound like the strongest pitch. <clears throat> you know, if yeah. I was to pitch a documentary, <laughs> I don't think I'd start by look. I don't like you very much. Yeah. But, you know, but um, well, it was me that invited him. And the film is called Almost Fashionable, and oh, yeah. people should seek it oh, out. Yeah. It's probably not going to be on the telly for a while, so we're yeah. You know, it's probably um, appear on maybe Netflix or something, I would imagine. I would hope so. Yes, indeed. In a way, that dovetails us nicely into The Man Who, the main part of what we're going to talk not exclusively what we're going to talk about in terms of your career, but um, it's called Almost Fashionable, the film, and I guess part of the reason that maybe in some people's eyes you're not so fashionable is because you had this kind of colossal success with this album. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, as you know, as I've told you before, mm. it's one of my favourite albums of the last two decades. It's a good record. I'm glad you still... I'm, and I'm glad, you know... It, it stands up. It, and, it touches um, me that you're still happy to sort of talk about oh, it. You well, know. you know, when we'd done it, we were working with Nigel and Mike Hedges. So Nigel Godrich. Nigel Godrich, yeah. yeah. And and he was just sort of hot off doing um, OK Computer. He was really at the peak of his mm-hmm. kind of... Um, burgeoning powers and um and mike hedges as well he was off the back of um everything um everything must go the, the oh, right, manix yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, design for life all that stuff yes and you know but nigel more than anything you, you listen to the record and, and it really it it stands up now if you it could be released now yeah it still sounds really really amazing and i think you know you get with radiohead I was trying to explain to someone the way I write songs Mm. and I was talking about like imagine there's a trough of salad and a trough of sugar or rather a field of sugar a field of salad Mm. and I run down the middle in one of those Minecraft carts and writing songs is just you put your hand in both and you're flicking it into the middle and you you might get something that's overly sweet you know sometimes I over sweeten it and sometimes I get it you know you get a writing to reach you it's just as more salad it's mm. all salad <laughs> and then you might get a um, why does it always rain on me with a little bit of sugar or, mm. and sometimes it goes over the top with it, like maybe flowers in the window it's just mm. but it's still got something about it whereas Radiohead are way over in Saladville they're never going to touch the sugar Nigel Godrich, is he going to have to deploy a slightly different skill set if he's working with Travis and if he's working totally. with Radiohead? Well, maybe, maybe, because Radiohead will never write that type of song. And what he got with us was a band that had certain sensibilities that lay that way, but also we had this kind of pop sensibility. And 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 I thought that was the we were a very, a very perfect blend. And he would come in and he would just de it's like defluffing a jumper. <laughs> go like, oh, all right, that's good. And he would just pick all the wee bits off that he thought, that's a wee bit too saccharine. As he said to Andy McDonald, who was the A&R guy, yeah. Independiente or Go Discs, um, he's going to take, um, he was like, I'm going to take the Paul McCartney out of the, you know, the obla-dee-obla-das yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, moments yeah. out of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Although there is a conversation to be had about obladi obladi. I'm but anyway, all for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and another another show. <laughs> or maybe as a kind of DVD extra to this show. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so yeah, he was um, Nigel was in this amazing zone, and we were we weren't expecting anything. We'd moved to London. We did our first album. It was just a big sort of stompy rompy thing and then um, I wrote a bunch of songs very quiet songs because my neighbour upstairs or rather downstairs kept banging the really was that up. was that how much percent was that the reason why the songs got quiet yeah I, I, I think quite a lot I was a bit scared of him and he would shout can I swear you can beep it out if you want yeah, no, but you this swear. guy would scream at the top of his voice you rock and roll wanker he was a real skinhead and he was just mad. Where were we geographically at this point? Crouch End. Where Hornsey Lane joins Hill, Hillfield Avenue. Okay, so why we towards Wood Green? Yes. And one day, I just had enough, and I thought, I'm going to face this guy off. He had massive sound system, and he, I don't know what he, I think he would put it on so it was near the ceiling. Yeah. Like 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning, would turn it up full blast and play the Lighthouse family at me. And I don't know if that had an effect on the record. Yeah. I'd like to say no, but who knows? <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to hear an instance of anyone aggressively playing the Lighthouse family. It was song. horrible. And I ran downstairs and I banged on his door and he came to the door in his white underpants, open um, nightgown. He was lean. He looked like, a, like one of these total fighters. I went pure Glasgow on him and I was like, fucking... And, and he totally, he had a meltdown in front of me and started crying, saying all kinds of things like, I'm having such a bad time in my life, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was just like that. Did you stay there long enough for him to know what it was that you were working on and what it turned out to be? What yeah, well, actually, I came, I saw him again after after The Man Who, and he was like... Because I told him we were in a band, and anyway, that's... The scene was set for Humility. me to yeah. sit quietly in my room, just like peddling away and, and a lot of quiet songs but I mean a lot of these songs like say um, Writing to Reach You um, Turn we had Writing to Reach You at Good Feeling oh you did but, but we could we weren't good enough to play it <laughs> you write a song that you're not good enough to play yeah every day I wake up and it's Sunday whatever's on my head go away what Nigel brought to it was just this Exciting. He's, he's just sonically brilliant, and he's and he's also very, very. His taste is like no one else's. In what sense? Well, in the sense that you you could be you go in and do a vocal, and he'll be like, "Now, could you do that again?" And you're like, "Yeah," and but you're like, "Was that not good?" And he's like, "Do it again." So you do it again, and then and then he goes, uh, "Nah, that was shit. Do it again." That's not you. It's good to know and at the point where you think it's the worst vocal you've ever done, he goes, that was the one. Come on in. And so you come in, and it's stunning. I'm like, how did I not hear that? Yeah. And he's hearing, he listens for things that you, most people don't listen for. Teach. 
when Nigel worked with um, Paul McCartney on Chaos and Creation in oh the Backyard. Put Paul through the ringer. <coughs> he really did. Yeah, no, he, I don't think uh, Nigel's on Paul's Christmas card list. Uh, oh, they're, they're still in talking terms. Oh, good, okay. He's, um, he's definitely on the Christmas card list. Oh, good. Um, I met Paul after that. On holiday, I would like. I didn't like go on holiday with Paul McCartney, mm. but he just was in the place that I was at, and and it's actually where we met. Was it how, fifteen years ago? This is Sarah, by the way, my editor yeah. who made the the documentary. Hi, Sarah. But fifteen. Like, yeah, thirteen, fourteen. So me and Nora and Sarah and her husband George. Nora, your wife. My wife. People who don't know you. We were um, sitting at this table in this thing. We just met these lovely people. And um, having dinner and getting to know each other. And this guy comes up to the table and he's like, oh, excuse me, mate, can I get your autograph to me? And I looked up and it was Paul McCartney. <laughs> what a charmer. <laughs> I know, isn't he? Ah. Um, but we, on that holiday, um, after that shock, um, we we hung out a bit, a little bit. And um, we had a good little natter about Nige and his... You do that again, and it's do good that, that you had the Nigel thing there because it's actually that's a th- that's like a non-Beatle thing that you can talk about, yeah. which kind of levels things out between you. So, yeah. so it was a blessing. Yeah, totally. Uh, and Nigel sort of he makes you lose faith in everything you held dear, <laughs> and you you don't know where you are, you don't know what is good, you don't know who you are, and then um, the other thing he does, and the thing he does with Radiohead as well. The thing he does with everyone is he makes bands play live. He doesn't do all this. Everything's live. And he'll just pick the best performance of the, all the people in the room at the same time. Because uh, this is one of the beautiful things about The Man Who is you're listening to the room. You're, yeah. not, you're listening to mm-hmm. a room that has a band in it. You mm-hmm. know, that's wonderful about it. And yeah. the drums are mic'd amazingly. Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb Jet earphones. You mentioned writing to reach you. Yeah. Because that was the first song I heard from the record. Yeah. And I remember because we'd met like a couple of years before and I'd got the sort of 10-inch All I Want to Do is Rocky P. And I sort of felt like, I think I might have dismissed you, but because I'd heard Radiohead, I'd heard Pablo Honey... Uh um, do you know what I hadn't? <laughs> Did you believe that? Well, you I know, was so. I mean, that's how green we were. No, but the point that the, they were not the done deal on Pablo Honey. Oh no! But I thought I'd seen Radiohead live. They so spent I'd... their entire career trying to get away from that record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or those videos. Absolutely. Oh yeah, God, Poppy's dead. <laughs> anyway, um, but I'd seen them live. It might have been the first clever thought I'd ever had in my life. Like the first thought where I was onto something because I was such a dick in so many ways at that point in my life and here was the clever thought I had it was if this band know how to sound this good live one day they will make a record that matches that standard and Pablo Honey's not that record and then the Benz came out and I thought wow I had a clever thought so when I heard your first album I thought I'm kind of getting deja vu here and not in terms of how the song sounded but I just thought it's the second record we saw then I heard writing to reach you. God, that I, I, I knew they'd get better, but I didn't think that. I, it, it was better in a different way to how I expected. Yeah. Because that melancholy, it was just not the thing that I was expecting you to do. Yeah. yeah. Maybe tomorrow will be mundane. I'm 
was a song written in response to was it a girl an ex-girlfriend that had ended a relationship yeah i was chucked and then i was just doodling away and i'd been writing her lots of letters and not getting any replies to her yeah and she'd moved to st andrews to do be a doctor and then chucked me and that was that and i was pretty heartbroken and then I was reading this Franz Kafka Letters to Felis, which is just an amazing book. It's all these letters that are one way. There's no replies. It's just all... Hmm. It really touched me. I felt like I shouldn't really be reading this because it's so private. There's little moments where you're like, oh, that's just... I don't... Oh, looking behind the curtain too much. And um, there was a song by a band called... It was a song called 74, 75. Oh, I love that. The Canals. Yeah, yeah. I love that song. So there, there was a little do 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 And then I was sitting one night and I was playing the chords to Wonderwall. And I, I thought, oh, they're great chords. I just learned them. And, and the Wonderwall was all over the radio at that point with the Mike Flowers thing. You know, mm. it was just, you couldn't get away from Oasis. Mm, mm. I thought I'll maybe try and sing a different melody over that chord cycle. <laughs> I do. Everybody does Everyone it. Everyone does it, yeah. But you can't, it's very hard to get a new melody once a good melody's already living in it. Yeah. But out came this song. And, and the, originally it was the every day I wake up and it's on me. But then it changed. It's good to know that you You know what was written half an hour before The Line Is Fine, which is on the first album, which is just a big spanky, rocky, stompy thing that's not great, but it's got something, but they're they're like twin songs. Yeah. Non-identical twins. Yeah, yeah. Weirdly. Wow, that's amazing. Did she ever hear it? Oh, well, yeah, of she, course I she I guess did. she must have done that, but does she know? Yeah, she does. She had a bit of a, a hard time because people knew, because the band, we were just like bubbling away like in, in Nowheresville, and then suddenly, boom, with writing with to reach you, which is about her, and then um, love on there, which is was written to her as oh, well. really? Yeah. There's a lot of anguish in that song. The, the demo of that I made and sent her, never heard back. Totally, I was like, she's got to reply to this. Just throwing everything at it, really. Yeah, you know. but it was... But that, you got a good record out of it. What's so wrong with the face so long? Is it over? genius that's going on here with Nigel uh, Nigel's treatment of the songs is Mm. you know you hear a lot of bad stuff about compression you know the modern malaise is that everything happens in the middle and I feel like like a lot of this record happens in the middle I tell you I love that if that's true if I'm hearing it correctly because it almost makes it sound like an ambient record so 
everything happens in this fog of melancholy yeah, and the yeah. loud bits are never too loud yes. and the quiet bits are never too quiet and um, you know that kind of blue monday feeling that when the, the world just isn't really sitting right for you you can't find your rhythm mm. it's a perfect sort of reflection of that Everything in the studio is just try and make Nigel laugh. Always try and make him laugh. Try and put him off, and he loves it. You know, because <laughs> um, c- coming into the, the room and watching Nigel lying on the floor <clears throat> on his side, with the, one wee knob in one hand and one wee knob in another, twiddling them. You know, like going. I was like, "What are you doing?" And I wanted him to tell me exactly what he was doing. And he's like, I'm just making it sound amazing. And that was as much <laughs> technical talk as you got from him. And he, but he was. And it's it's quite fascinating to watch someone that, when you hear, you know, these big records, how very basic his approach is to what he does. You know, he's, his, his mixes are flat. He doesn't EQ when he's recording. Right, right. It's all mic position. Like some of the great, great people, John Wood, who yeah. uh, he worked at Sound Techniques, same mm-hmm. thing. And we went back, I think, to, to one of the tapes to take a... Um, I think there's a, there's a glass harp on Driftwood. And um, we put up the tapes and zeroed the desk and everyone's just kind of like standing and they press play. It sounded like the record. <laughs> Flat, you know, like no, no, no mix. Just sounded great without even touching it. songs are just deceptively simple but you know beneath the surface complicated things are sort of brewing clearly and um, let's talk about the fear this is a sort of um, a queasy non-specific something's not quite right it's an anxious thing this is the I'm Chucked album, right? So that song is the I think I'm going to get chucked. Wow. I, I can feel it. It's coming. It's coming. I'm going to get chucked. And then I get chucked. And you were right. You I were was so right. right. Oh. There's that lovely guitar thing. that I, I heard something similar on an Uncle Supple album a few years before, mm-hmm. and it's got that almost like rootsy sort of... Um, the finger-picky thing. Yeah. He's he's brilliant at arpeggio. He's, he's, and he's so... He's such a modest guy, Andy. I think he's one of the best guitarists out there. He just always plays for the song. You were moving around in different studios, so I'm I'm getting a sense that for an album that sounds so effortless, it didn't really start effortlessly. It was all over the place. We started in France with Mike Hedges, and then we kind of came to London... Abbey Road with Mike and that was and, terrible and that recorded the most session. expensive cello part in history yeah yeah 
So we were in there and it was just like, we were in the Beatles room and it was like, I don't know, it's very expensive room to be in. We were in there for two weeks or something and nothing stuck, everything stunk. And we were trying to record Turn and it was so sad. It got so bad that I ended up singing it a cappella because nothing, none of the music worked. I remember looking up in the control room and everyone was just looking so sad down at me, thinking, this is pish. And then Mike suggested doing a little motif thing and the cello player came in and that's the only thing we used was that na, na, na. the milk tree tune. Oh, right. No, it's not the milk tree tune, but I remember Chris Evans one day and he, he, he's like, is that the milk tree tune? And I was like, what? <laughs> and he played it on the radio and, and it's like almost identical. I'm like, oh my God. Oh, and why does it always rain? Yeah. We are. Uh, oh, okay. Da, da. Okay. Well, at least you had that part anyway. Yeah. Each song that came out of the album seemed to be a bigger hit than the previous one. Yeah. But the label was worried, wasn't it? Well, yeah, everyone was worried because they, they really put a lot of support in for the first album and nothing happened. Mm. I think it was too depressing. The first one? No, this Oh, this, this oh one. yeah, they definitely were they were on the this is going to I had a conversation with Andy McDonald about the third single. So we had Right to Reach you was the first single, Driftwood was the second. Right, what's going to be the third single? And we had it was like a 2-hour long conversation <sighs> where I was trying to persuade him to make Why is it all Rain on me the next single? And my thought process was it's going to be Wimbledon it's going to rain <laughs> and the, they might play it I mean that's how ridiculous this isn't a, this this is a prophecy it happened didn't it it did but it happened at Glastonbury yeah I was there it was brilliant that moment when just something clicks into place yeah and then it's it's going to be sort of okay from here on in yeah why does it always rain Because I do want to ask you about the the sort of hidden track on uh, mm. the man who blue flashing light, which was, am I right in thinking that, that it was an attempt to write a single after you were told by your manager that yeah you know there just wasn't anything that could releasable it was too depressing, <laughs> the whole album's too depressing. You need to write an upbeat single, and so I wrote that and I wrote Driftwood. They were both pretty downbeat, but Driftwood was a bit more upbeat. Yeah, but, but blue flashing light was just it was very. Um, dark and I remember playing it Dougie came round and his mum and his dad was with him when we lived in the wee house the wee coach house in, in Western Park I, I, house. I walk past it almost every day right. yeah. so okay. I'm sitting there and, and Rita and Peter are sitting and I'm there's a wee bit of swearing in the song and I really hammered it I went full like and at the end of it ching, and Rita goes 
was very nice. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was so. <laughs> it was brilliant. Autobiographical, slightly, yeah. Because it was, it didn't sounds like it wasn't too easy for well, you. In in Glasgow, in just working class Britain, there's a lot of that going about. You know, the belt hanging over the back of the door. I mean, children are the only people on the planet you're still allowed to hit in some places. You know, and and for a long time, they were the only people it was legal to batter at your will. You know, if you wanted to. It's just bloody awful, but that's what it was like, yeah. and it was tough. And it was, you know, you have a lot of guys coming <clears throat> out of the Second World War with post-traumatic stress disorder before they knew what it was called. So that that's the world that your dad came from, and I know you've said mm-hmm. that he never hit you, but that was certainly the kind yeah. a, a culture that you were yeah. conversant with. Be- oh yeah, be- through your everywhere, dad. everywhere, you know, uh, uh, like in in Glasgow where I lived, it was just that was it. Yeah, kids just get the belt. I have zero tolerance for it. I just think if you if tomorrow no one was ever to hit another child ever again, you'd have world peace within about ten years. Yeah. Or fifty or twenty years. No, I do you know what? Do you remember when Sinead O'Connor got su- such a load of grief for saying that, you know, all the world's problems are as a result of child abuse and people treated her like she was mad. But if you take abuse any kind of abuse, yeah. take that as any kind of abuse, not just sexual yeah. abuse. Yeah. I think she was right. I know, she was right. It's past the parcel. It's just given on to person to person to person, and mm. and it never stops until you stop it. Like I stopped it, and I've mm. never touched my son mm. ever. Like never even made a move to go for him because no. that's just as bad. I think you know no, when you when be. you intimidate. But 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 in that song. There's the moral at the end where the the blues flashing light last Saturday night brought the neighbours all out on the street. We watched as the firemen carried you out and we stared at each other's feet. <laughs> now everyone sees and everyone, everyone sees, but nobody says, are we all just afraid of the heat? You know, it's that kind of British, oh, no, it's mm. like, that's your business, I don't want to. But you are uh, clearly your mother's son. Yeah, it seems to me more uh, than your father's son, and you, you know, you are, you know, you're sort of, you know, your whole sort of approach uh, around the women in your life seems to sort of be informed by as much by what you don't want to be, as as yeah, what yeah. you want to be, and I think that's true of a lot of us who kind of had those kind of overbearing paternal figures mm. that sort of you look at the women in your life and you sort of think, well, that's really something to try and emulate. I think you do that with everything. It's like Nigel coming in and picking the fluff off the jumper type of thing. You just get rid of, try and get rid of as much shit as you possibly can in this life. Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flair Audio, inventors of the superb jet earphones. I want to ask you about another song recorded around that time because it kind of leads us into the second part of uh, our conversation. You actually covered River by Joni Mitchell around this time as well, didn't you? And it's yeah. such a beautiful version. We did that in Rack <coughs> Studios in St. John's Wood. And um, we had a keyboard player, Jeremy, who's a rugby player type of guy. He was a very nice piano player. But 
we attempted to do this and he just couldn't get it. He was very ploddy and he, I was like, you need to play it like, play it like a, a lady would play it, you know, and he, and he kept coming back and going, dong, 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 all big heavy thumbs. And um, so I was like, right, Jeremy, me and you, come on, we'll go out. We went to Oxfam and I bought him a lovely dress. Um, it was, I think it was green <clears throat> with flowers on it. And he went, he went right along with it. And I was like, right, get in the dress. And he got in the dress. And he got, got in touch with his his woman, his inner woman, and he, he suddenly played this amazing... It really was night and day between the two. I'm like, there you go. Method style. Yeah. Brilliant. That's, see, that's good production as well. <laughs> that's Nigel must have been... Nigel wasn't there for that Nigel one. Nigel would have gazed on approvingly, I'm sure. Only child as well. What was happening in your life around the time that you discovered blue specifically? I um, I just come off this art course. I had my mind totally blown at uh, an art course in the west of Scotland, summer camp, like two weeks. They take kids who are good at drawing, and like I think there's like eighty kids, and um, they make lots of stuff, and you have an exhibition in. And I went three years in a row, and the middle year was the one that just transformed me in in so many ways. Um, so, what, how old are you? What year? What year? Seventeen is it? years old. And um, one of the teachers, a guy called Jerry Kelly. Jerry's the, the the best art teacher in Scotland, if not Britain. Jerry can walk into a class full of kids who don't have anything. You know, they they have, they come from very not so good backgrounds and they'll he'll take the class and they'll all come out with A's all of them and he's just he's like the Pied Piper of art because some teachers are like good at teaching this or that but I think the best teachers teach you things that are not um, obvious like they teach you how to be confident in yourself and your abilities and that's something that um one of the things that art is great art and drama and the arts and Jerry was like this just a, a like a wrecking ball in my life he was he just took me he saw something he went you're brilliant and I'm like eh and we me and Jude my mate who is a girl not a, a boy Jude but Jude and I would go over and see Jerry on Sunday and hang out for a cup of tea and out comes this record wow and he's like, do you know Joni Mitchell? And I'm like, who's who's he? <laughs> I had no idea. And uh, he puts it on and sitting with a cup of tea one Sunday, played this album. I don't think there's any other record that comes for me 
close to being a perfect album of mm. of, of, of lyrics, of melody, of, of musicianship, of tone, of, of balance. It's got everything. I've got. I have a theory that um, the records that, that that really affect us the most are kind of explaining our situation to us. Right. Where, where does my theory stand in relation to this record and your life? Um, I think. You don't I was have a, to agree, I, by the way. No, no. I, well, I was a very late developer. No, I was seventeen when I first heard it in nineteen ninety one, and. With Joni, you carry that album forever. I'm living over the hill from Laurel Canyon, which is where it, where it all really kicked off. Everybody's saying that hell's the hippest way to go. Well, I don't think so, but I'm going to take a look around at the blue. I, love I still listen to Blue, and I'm still transported by it. And as I grow, like t- twenty years later, it means different things to me. The songs that are, that, that that follow you through your life. I mean, River, for instance, mm-hmm. you're breaking up. That was a big one. My old man is a, another. Some of the some of the sentiments in it, some of the observations in it, are just stunning. I love the line about the fry the frying the bed's pans too big. The, the frying the pans, pans too wide. It's just like because it's sort of in from the left field. I know, but just what you notice it's yeah. that the, the ability to to hit the nail on the head the bed's too big the frying pan's too wide she had uh, all those guys in Laurel Canyon she was the, the dawn they couldn't touch her they knew and her love affair with um, Graham Nash and who who all this whole record? This is her breakup record, you know. Yeah, this yeah. is her breakup record from Graham Nash. She's saying goodbye to him, and and I mean it's it's heartbreak when you actually realise that that that's what this album is. Yeah, this yeah. is not for me or you or you or anyone. This is a record for him to say, "Listen, I love you, but I can't do this. I'm a free spirit. I'm, I'm and, I, and I need I need to do." Absolutely, this. and I have to say, if someone broke up with me the way she did with Graham Nash by sending him a telegram saying, "If you hold sand too tightly in your hand, it will run through your fingers," that would be like, "Fair enough, I can't." You know, if if you can if you can break up with someone as beautifully as that, I don't, I'm not sure I can keep up with you anyway. I met him once. You know the way weird things happen. Mm. Um, Jerry came down to visit us in London in Crouch End. Western part of the, when when we'd moved up the street a bit, Jerry Kelly, the art oh, yeah, teacher, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he he's like Franny, I brought you this 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 album, and I was a bit feeling a bit down in in the dumps at the times after Invisible Band, and it was all a bit like too much. Yeah. Hadn't, we hadn't stopped, and yeah. I was a bit down. Anyway, yeah. he brought this album, and he's like, listen to this song, puts the needle on the record, and it's a song called Another Sleep Song, and I just became obsessed with this one song I pretty much didn't listen to anything else for a year wow. I just listened and listened and listened and listened I played it to anyone that would come round to the house I'm like you got to hear this song it's a beautiful song but it touched me deeply it was t- t- spoke right to me from where I was at at the time 
And then uh, one day, two years later or a year later, I was in some hotel in Manchester and I was like checking out, going to sound check. And um, this guy was standing beside me at the thing and he was a friend of a friend and he's like, oh, hi, Fran. I'm like, oh, hey. He's like, do you know who this is? And, I turn, and I'm like, I'm literally <laughs> elbow to elbow with this old older gentleman, white hair, white moustache, kind of handsome, but... I'm like, no. And he's like, this is Mr. Graham Nash. And <laughs> I I was like, and I, like, I'd been listening. I must have listened to that song like 400 times in a year. And I just put my head on the, the, the reception desk. And this, he thought I was mental. He was like, what's that? So um, I told him all about it. And he's like, oh, I wrote that for Barbara Streisand. I was like, what? I was like, oh, it kind of got me a wee bit like, oh, Really? I yeah. He went to visit her, and she I, was. Sitting. I love details like that. I have to say, you know, just, just I had I had it all in my head. It was a bit Joni, or it was yeah. a bit him, or uh, anyway, Barbara Streisand, who was just lost in fame, and she was just sitting eating potato chips in her in her bed in her mansion in Malibu, and he went and visited her, and she was just completely out of touch, and um, it was him writing her a song to pull her out of her. He wrote it in her house. Uh, what what did she think of it? I don't know. But he then, he's like, oh, you know, he's dead friendly. He's like, come to the, I'm hanging a show, you know, take photographs. So I went to the show and there was a piano. He's like, what was that song? I'm like, another sleep sleep song. He's like, he goes, he goes, God, I've not played this for 30 years. And he starts remembering it on the piano and remembers it and starts singing it. And, the, and people are hanging, banging the things, but he's playing it. And his wife came up to me and she's like, you know, if you ask him, he'll come and play that with you on stage tonight. And I'm like, I'm not asking him that. I just can't. And I, I get into this thing with, and Graham walks up and he's like, well, what's, what's going on? And she's like, he wants to ask you, his wife's just like, he wants to ask you if you, if you would go up and, and Graham's like, I'd love to. And then I'm on the phone with the band going, guys, you need to hear, like, and it was before it was kind of like the internet wasn't that great there wasn't any you know so it was like playing the song down the phone to them kind of thing and they, they learned it and he came and played it all I need is someone to awaken me much of me has gone to sleep and I'm afraid to wake up we're ostensibly talking about blue classic albums I love reading old reviews of albums when they're good, but in a way, I like reading the negative ones more. Oh, yeah. And this is one from Melody Maker. About Blue? Yeah, in 1971. We elect our heroes because they tell us truths about life, but their very success divorces them from our field of experience. None of it is Joni's fault, of course. Her songs continue to reflect her own reality, but where once the truths she distilled were universal... The songs here tend to be inward-looking. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's so good. I think it's. I yeah. I think it's important to read bad reviews yeah. of of good records because <clears throat> it just kind of reminds you that. Um, that's my whole career. <laughs> well, steady. <laughs> but um, th- thank you very much, Fran. And uh, it's been a while since we last saw each other. But I, do you know what? I just I feel like you're always. Uh, you know, because I. I you know, I do go on Twitter from time to time. You're just there, and and I feel like you're always there. I'm like a floating head in cyberspace. Yeah, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice, you know, and it's nice to know that you're there because well, I feel I, the same. 
yeah. about you not about me but, <laughs> but it's nice to know i'm better yeah. but um thank you no thank you very much it's it's always wonderful to catch up with you it's lovely it's really is so lovely so thank you for listening to what i think is uh depending on how we order them is the second needle mythology or it might be the third one i'm not sure yet number two number two let's make <laughs> it number two <laughs> you've been listening to needle mythology with myself pete perfides and fran healy needle mythology was produced by laura Druce, brought to you in proud association with our friends at flare audio inventors of the superb jet earphones best earphones in the world have you heard those earphones have you got them Aye. oh wow they are you, you listen to them and it's like you hear stuff on records that you never it's like hearing your album for the first time again going oh and the way they wanted you to hear it 